Well, thank you everyone to come today for this talk. I know it's part of the Oxford Alumni Weekend and you are maybe listening all different kind of sorts of talks and I don't know what is your motivation to come today here. Let me introduce myself. myself I'm Sonia Trigueros. I'm James Martin Fellow. I'm kind of a James Martin, uh, part of the Institute of the <coughs> Nanoscience for Medicine. In our institute, which is a quite rather small, we try to understand and to work with nanotechnology that can be applied to medicine. And I will try to convince you today with this talk that what is nanotechnology? At first, I will take you all to the world of nanotechnology. I will explain what are the most challenging situations right now, which is probably at the level of experimental work, obviously, but the, po the opinion of you, the opinion of society, is one of our biggest challenges. And I will explain as well what are the opportunities. I mean, I rather prefer to do this kind of informal, so please, if you have any question while I'm talking, or I may ask you questions about what you think about it, okay, please feel free. So, I'm sure that you heard about nanotechnologies everywhere right now. Looks like everyone is working with nanotechnology. But let me just delete all of you what you know, okay? You don't know anything, and let me take you what is a nano. First of all, imagine that you can divide one meter in one billion parts, okay? That part is a nanometer. So it's really, really, really tiny, okay? In terms, if you want to have an idea, let's imagine that the thick of a human hair is about 100 microns, so it's quite big. And this is the resolution of the human eye. So basically, you can see your hair, well, obviously depends on the quality of your hair. <laughs> <laughs> you have a good hair, the thickness, that's the resolution that your eye can actually see, okay? Below that, we have, for example, um, human red blood cells, which are 10 microns, bacteria, which are rough, one micron, viruses, 100 nanometers. At this level, we can use optical microscopy. We use microscopes, we use fluorescent microscopes, we can actually visualize and understand cells like at this scale of size. However, below 100 microscopes, 100 nanometers, for example, we have proteins about 10 nanometers, DNA, sorry, it's about 2 nanometers, the diameter, atoms is 0.1 nanometers. There is no way that with um, um, optical microscope we can actually see these things, okay? And this is the field of research of nanotechnology. So we study things, organic, inorganic, material, that are few nanometers in size. Actually, we already have the definition of what is nano. So nano is an object that one of the diameters is below 100 nanometers, okay? So finally, I think it was in 2009 that we all agree to define what is nano because it was kind of a little bit undefined everything, okay? Nanotechnology does not only allow us to visualize small things, things about few atoms. Let's imagine, so 10 atoms will be one nanometer, okay? It actually brings us something better. We can actually make nanostructures. What I mean is like we can actually have big like grams of silver, for example, and we can break it down until it reaches the nanometer, so we have new nanomaterial, or more sophisticated technologies, we can actually put atom by atom together and make nanostructures. Okay? As you will see, I have prepared several samples of how I do this in the lab, so 
Believe me that you can actually do this, but everyone that works with nanotechnology, and especially with nanomaterials, we find out that the materials at the nano level have completely different properties than the same element at the micro level or atomic level. Let me give you an example. You know, for example, wires of copper. You know, they are always on the plugins and everything. If you get a wire, you can actually, uh, it's very flexible. You can make nodes, you can make things. Copper has been used for a lot of things. But at the nano level, copper is one of the most stiffness material, even more strong than the diamond. So what happens? We have new material. We have nano material, and that's perfect. But there's all these new properties that we need to carry on and characterize them if we want to know how we can use this nanomaterial. But obviously, not only copper, like we have plenty of new nanomaterial, and that's why we can actually make, we can, for example, in this side, you can actually see going down on size, we can visualize everything from organisms to DNA to atoms. But the important thing, we can make little devices as well. That is called microelectronic mechanical devices or nanoelectronic mechanical devices. Okay, and that's important as you will see later on. We can actually make carbon nanotubes, cellulose fi nanofibers, we can make everything that what we want. But because all these new nanomaterials have properties that are totally different, we are now like a, we have a new world in front of us. So that's why nanotechnology has been very important and is a big step right now in all kind of field of research and applications. For example, we have in electronics, energy, environment, new materials, as you will see later on. However, and it's not because it's what I'm working on, but biology and medicine has a lot of things to say right now, okay, as you will see later. Here I summarize for you, and I think that you will have a copy of this talk and the presentation, so just listen. We have now, here I summarize some of the most interesting nanotechnology applications that are happening right now. We have information and communication. We are the doing things for memory storage, quantum <coughs> computers, a lot of uh, interest is in the heavy industry, especially in the aerospace, with a lot of these new nanomaterials, because they are more resistant to oxidize, more resistant to be scratched. They're actually using for new aircraft uh, design or for cars, because they are lighter, because they are more resistant. Not to mention all the field on, on chemistry and environment for filtration in terms of water purification, air purification filters. So it's incredible, the big, um, applications that nanotechnology have right now. However, medicine. What happens with medicine? What is the nanotechnology in medicine? Or what medicine can say to us? Okay, if you think about it, you have a new nanomaterial, okay? This nanomaterial can be used as drug delivery system, or as you will see later, or anything that has to be taken by the human body. Medicine will tell us where this material will be, how the material will affect in all kinds of cells. This is just to measure, to remind you that in the, in the human body, we only not have uh, human cells. We have bacteria cells, quite a lot. Actually, we have more bacteria than actually human cells. So we have to be very careful that what we design, and if we want to take it as a medicine, does not have any tox toxicity, either in the human bodies or on the bacteria that we live in symbiosis. That's why you can actually eat vegetables during milk. If you don't have this bacteria, you have lactose intolerance, you have all these problems. So we need to be very careful and understand that the human body is a very complex system, and this is what medicine is doing right now. There are so many applications, and a lot of people tell me that, yeah, okay, but what about this 
materials that we use in objects that are not taken by the human body, for example, for better batteries on cell phones or stuff like that, things that are not going to be taken by the human body. It's important to remember always that in the ecosystem that we live, we have plants, humans, animals, but actually as well, we have bacterium. So we have all a uh, complex system of living organisms. So basically knowing how, nano how the new nanomaterial is affecting the human cells and the bacteria that we have, we have to be careful because that will be affecting as well the ecosystem. So we don't want to have something, new material, fantastic, great, and then what we do with it? It's going to happen the same like with the radioactivity, that we have to put it into tanks and ship it in deep on the ocean somewhere. We don't want that. We need to understand that this new nanomaterial, it's okay, it's great, have new properties, but we need to understand <coughs> what is the toxicity of these elements. So medicine will give us the answer between this new nanomaterial or nano object has some toxicity, and if, if it does, does any have any potential application, how we can apply this? We don't want to have things that are toxic for us, okay? As I told you from the beginning, uh, nanotechnology has a lot of opportunities, as I've been saying right now, but we're facing a lot of challenges. One, for me, one of the most important ones, and that's why I'm here to listen to your opinion, and that's why we're always giving talks to public engagement, because every time that we have something like GMO, genetic modified, or uh, food, now we can actually say about organic, inorganic food, free-range food, stem cell research, every time that we have something new, society has something to say, obviously. But in the cases of organic, inorganic, you may have your own opinion, okay? You could be, I agree, or we cannot disagree. However, a lot of things, a lot of people give an opinion based on not knowing things. And this is what happens a little bit in nanotechnology. When I go to the pubs with my friends in Oxford and I say, oh yeah, I'm doing nanotechnology for medicine, immediately the answer is, oh, and are you doing nanorobots that are gonna go inside the body? I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> Physically speaking, it's impossible to do that right now. You never know in the future, okay? But it happens that these people, later on, they give, they transfer the, the education to other people. They talk in, in conference, so I have to, be very careful that I know, that they know what I'm talking about. So that we do a lot of public engagement in order to educate the people, okay, and give them a proper knowledge. And then you can have the opinion that you want, but based on what we know so far. For example, if I ask you now, how many of you are in favor of organic, uh, inorganic food, for example? Raise your hands. How many how people want to keep having inorganic food? Inorganic. inorganic. Okay, a lot of people say, okay, inorganic, organic, well, organic, inorganic, in order to differentiate, like broadly, for example, inorganic is a plant or food that are cultivated using inorganic pesticides, like the ones that we use in all our lives. Organic is the new fashion of doing it, using organic pesticides or other ways, without any pesticides, basically. So. People have been saying this, that for our health is much better, I could be agree on some kind of, until certain level, that organic food is better for us, because we don't use inorganic pesticides that we know that they are toxic. Okay? However, and that's one of the things that I want you to think about it, how a plant can survive without any pesticide, all the worms, bacteria, flies. So how it does? We know now organic food start to have their own uh, mutations that produce in internal pesticides. So far has been described 18 
mutations in organic food. You don't know about all of this because we only know about two of them because they're antioxidants, so they're good. But what is the left, the other 16? How we are sure that this food, with all these mutations in order to be adaptable, are better for our health? We know a lot about inorganic food right now, but we don't know about organic. However, even though we don't know, and I agree, I have no idea, you go to the shops and you buy organic food, and it's much more expensive, and people believe that they're doing something good for their health. Okay, that's one of the things that I don't like, taking advantage of not knowing, of, not, of people that doesn't know, okay? But these things happen. STEM, the same case was all the regulation with the stem cell research. It was a fantastic new advantage that we can actually use right now, but it has been blocked for more than 20 years. Okay, why? What's the problem with the stem cells? You know? So what I'm trying to do today is to convince you that you may be in favor or not of nanotechnology, but if you are or you are not, you will have an opinion and you will ask questions, okay? Unfortunately, as I said before, nanotechnology has a very broad impact in our society. It was in 1960 that Isaac Asimov wrote the first book about a fantastic travel around inside the human body with nanorobots, fine, that was science fiction, okay? Unfortunately, in 2010, this awful, seriously, movie, you have to see, they make these nano, nanomites that can actually go into your brain, change the way that you're thinking, convince that the good is bad. <sighs> okay, I was very upset when I saw this movie. <laughs> However, I have to recognize that these movies and this book has more impact than actually my work, okay? So, just, if you happen that one day, Sunday, raining, you're boring at home, just check this movie. You will frighten, basically. But, is there? And is the second part coming on? Anyway, so, nano, uh, nanotechnology applications in medicine is really, really big field of research. I try to summarize in these four blocks what is the center, what we're doing right now in medicine. We try to find in here what we call nanomolecular diagnosis. This blog has the meaning of trying to diagnose diseases, toxicity things, at, with very few um, molecules. For example, if you have a cancer, we try to actually make nanotools, nanodevices that will detect the tumor at the level of one or two cells, not when you have the tumor already, okay? In nanomolecular diagnosis as well, we try to make small devices, small biosensors, that you can actually, for example, go to different countries where they don't have hospitals all around and they have to travel for hours to go to the hospital. We are trying to do small devices that you can, with a drop, with a blood of the <coughs> drop of your blood, you can actually see how sense the glucose levels, insulin, malaria presents, any other kind of infections, okay? So that's what we are trying on this section. Nano devices for medicine and surgery will include all the new tools when you have to go through an operation, we're trying to make small catheters, for example, to make the intervention the most painful and damaged for your human body, okay? We're making new devices for detecting cancer, detecting viruses, detecting bacteria. That's all about the applications of nano. Nanotechnology in tissue engineering, you will see right now, we're trying to, <coughs> tissue engineering or regenerative medicine is quite with us for a long time right now. Basically, what they try to do is, outside the human body, regenerate a tissue that can be then transplanted to your own body. Okay? I, you will see some examples right now. And then in the block of nanopharmaceuticals, it's all this block on drug delivery systems, 
new drugs, new antibiotics, new everything, okay? And there is here is a lot on a lot of going on between research, applications and industry. Imagine all the pharmaceutical companies are really interested in that. So basically majority of our funding comes from pharmaceutical companies. No questions? Clear? Everything is clear? Okay. Good. I just want to mention this nanotechnology in regenerative medicine because I think that, maybe not, but I think that you will listen about it all the time right now. It's one of the hot topics right now. What happens in this, okay, in regenerative medicine or tissue engineering, basically, you get, you started from stem cells, okay? So let's imagine this topic has nanotechnology and stem cells. So a lot to say, a lot of regulations, a lot of problems here, okay? But what we're trying to do is you get the stem cell. How many of you know what is a stem cell? Or no? Okay, for the ones that maybe, no, let's imagine it's a cell that is in your body, okay, at different states of your development, that still have the potential to become any kind of tissue cell. The stem cells can be developed to uh, bone cells, heart cells, muscle cells, so they have the potential there. So tissue engineering and regenerative medicine gets these cells and develop this potential, okay? Then when you have the tissue, whatever it is, blood cell, neurons, muscle, heart, whatever, then you have to transplant to the body, okay? Transplantation to the body obviously have a lot of problems because you can have rejections, even though are your stem cells, you can have some rejections. But think about it. There's one thing that people still don't know. If you put two cells together, stem cells together, with all the factors that you needed or all the growth medium that you want, that will not make a tissue. Okay? What are we missing here? Let's imagine that you are building a house. You have the bricks, you have to put it together, you have the land, you have everything. But if you put things together, maybe things are not, I will, will fall, they don't have the shape that you want. So that's the role of a scaffold. Okay? You have the scaffold and you build following the scaffold structure that you previously have defined. If you are doing a summer house, the scaffold will have some <coughs> structure, some functions. If you are doing a cathedral, it will be totally different. Okay? And this is what we're doing with nanotechnology in tissue engineering. We are making nano scaffolds. So this here, okay, and I will show you later, later on, is done with nanofibers and in here we will place the cells and give them all the nutrients and that will give us the proper tissue that we want. According to the tissue that we want to do, we are preparing different scaffolds. Scaffolds for bone cells are difficult are very difficult, scaffolds for neurons, scaffolds for whatever you want. Now, the challenge is, we want to do it, and this is probably more the topic of regenerative medicine. Imagine that, and I will tell you, it's starting to happen. You have a, an injection, they will inject it to you, for example, on your skin. What we want is to have the, uh, the tissue growing, okay, with the scaffold growing, in situ, at the same time on your body. The, the tissue will be done and then the challenge is we want to remove the scaffold because it could give you some histocompatibilities. So now our field of research on nano scaffolds, we are trying to find the ones that are biodegradable. Means that as soon as the tissue is done, so it's a parallel, the cells are growing, the scaffold is removing. 
And if we can make that, that would be a big challenge because you don't have to operate, you don't have problems with tissue implantation. So in the lab we have right now a project when you have a liquid, you have everything that you need for a scaffold. When we put it at four degrees, it makes a perfect scaffold with nice porosity. So we are trying, we are investigating on this. Okay? No questions? Okay, this is the one of the pictures of the scaffolds that has been published recently, well, 2002. Now we're coming better. We can control the um, architecture of the scaffold. We can control the porosity, the material. Yeah. Ooh, we have plenty of them. Um, polymers are very used for this. Carbon, we're using, for example, carbon nanotubes, very thin carbon nanotubes, coated with ketosine. Ketosan is a protein that comes from the, you know, the crabs, you know, these animals that go side by side, okay? They're very hard, the back. Okay, so we, can, we get the protein from them. When you mix them together, okay, nothing happens. But when you mix them in certain uh, conditions, they bend together and they form a beautiful scaffold, okay? Now, having the scaffold is not everything. Now, you need to know that the cells are going to grow there, that we can deliver all the drugs or the nutrients that we need. So this is becoming to be important, but it's still at the level of the lab and research. Okay? Ah, another one. Actually, this already exists, uh, the first artificial skin. I don't know if you heard about it. It's working properly, more or less, some kind of histocompatibility, but I think that sooner or later they will manage to have it, obviously, can we want to use it for people that burn the faces or have burned. So it's a lot of applications, as you can see. <coughs> now, back again, I have to mention that in 2011, okay, I really love this movie. It's the last <laughs> Spanish movie from Almodovar. You have to see. But once again, and the, the first half an hour, I was very happy because he took one of these topics about nanotechnology, stem cells, and I was like, wow, great. But it, as always, Almodovar, you know, takes things towards a little bit too much. <laughs> but it's one of the best movies that I have seen from him. I don't know if you see it already, but please go. And it's already online, so that's fine. You can see it. But once again, it's like I believe that people will separate what is science and science fiction. But you never know. So just watch the movie and see what happens. But let's come back to the first 21st century, the problems that we have right now. You know, the human health right now we have is quite, uh, we have all these problems with cancer. AIDS, malaria, antibiotic resistance, to say some of, thing of them. There's plenty of problems that we have. Nanotechnology medicine doesn't pretend to cure everything, okay, and become immortal, come on. What we want is to do things that you can actually, even you have cancer or you have malaria, the treatments are better, reduce the secondary effects, and you can have a better quality of life. It's not on my point to actually cure everything, understand everything and have perfect life and immortal or whatever. No, no, we want to help in having a better standard of life for people that actually suffer any kind of this disease. Okay, so now I'm gonna explain what, I'm, what are my projects in my, in my lab. And you will see how we are tackling these problems. So for long years, like all my PhD and all my first postdoc, I've been working on different type of microscopies and I've been able to observe how is a virus, I can see now bacteria cells, I can see human cells, we use fluorescence, no fluorescence. So this uh, advantage of, mic of optical microscopy will have allowed me to understand how virus infect bacteria, how bacteria infect human cells, 
how the bacteria reproduce, so we have done a big advantage. But you have a limitation. You understand things at the level of the organism, but if you want to go inside the cell, I understand how things work. You need new methodology, okay? And that's what nanotechnology right now is becoming extremely important because I'm a biologist, okay? A molecular cell biologist from the beginning, and if you, I don't know if you pay attention, I'm working right now in physics, which is kind of weird, okay? <laughs> but why was that? It's because I know perfectly molecular biology tools, biochemistry tools, but I need more. And it's now nanotechnology becoming a big boom because we all realize that it's impossible to do everything on your own. You need to be multidisciplinary. And nanotechnology needs chemistry, physics, medical doctors, biology. It needs everything together. So I moved to physics to start working with atomic force microscopy because one of my questions, as you will see right now, and I have been doing my PhD and everything, it's about DNA. If I want to see the DNA, if I want to see how it's inside the cell, I need to go inside, okay? So this is one of the first pictures in 1970. It's an electron microscopy picture of a DNA. <coughs> nice, but you will see now in 2010, I got for the first time high resolution. This is a bacterial DNA. And this, believe it or not, is the structure that the, the DNA have inside the cell. We have achieved high resolution. Um, an atomic force microscopy, so we can even see in quite a lot of the parts the double helix, the structure of the double helix of the DNA. So obviously, as a molecular biology working for 11 years with DNA, when I saw this, I didn't move from the physics department. It's like, okay, I'm staying here. <laughs> That's good. So I was very lucky to, and I don't know if it's going to work, to travel with these samples to Japan and help them to develop the highest speed AFM. High-speed AFM is scanning really fast, and you can see things moving, because in, na in nature, everything is moving, everything is dynamic. So yeah, this is beautiful, love it. I understood a lot, much more now about the DNA after I see that, but I challenged myself, and I went to Kanazawa University, and I don't know if it's gonna work, because they never work. Okay, what is going on? Okay, yeah. You can see here, it's really, okay, I lose resolution, but you can see here how this molecule of DNA is dancing on the liquid. So this is how the DNA is in the cell, moving, dynamics. So we are developing a new technology to observe things in movement. So that's the nice of nanotechnology and the multidisciplinary. So I went to Kanazawa to help them to develop this machine. By observing my DNA, I could understand that the machine was doing properly or not. So it's kind of bringing all the people together in order to reach this new technology. Now you were thinking, okay, why is my problem? Why I want to know about how the DNA moves inside the cell? Okay, why it's so important for me? I don't know if you know, but you have in, you can observe your arms and you don't see your cells, you see tissue, isn't it? Okay, let's imagine that this part has a lot of cells and in each of the cells of your body, from skin to neurons to everything. Inside the cell, you have two meters of DNA. Come on, it's a little bit too much. That's <laughs> it's thin, fine, but it's long. So basically, I think that if you put all the DNA of your body and you stretch it, someone told me that you can go to the moon and come back four times, okay? So my question always, since I start studying biology, is like, why? I need all this DNA. Why do we have two meters? I'm all confined, all claustrophobic inside the cell. You know, like, oh. And then I heard that after the human genome was sequenced, I heard that only 5% of that DNA brings 
uh, genetic information. So why nature has given us this 95%? Come on, nature is very intelligent. You will never do something like that unless you have function. Okay? So all my career is to try to understand why we have two meters of DNA. can tell you that we published papers already that it's important for regulation of proteins, it's important to, for a lot of things. Okay? Believe me, it has a lot of functions and more and more we are discovering. But one problem. As I say, you have these two meters, and these two meters are not just waiting in the, in the nucleus. No, no, the DNA is dynamic, it's moving, it's copy. Every time that you need a, a cell baby, when you reproduce, or bacteria, or everything, needs to copy the DNA. So in a moment, it will be like even twice the volume of the DNA. And when it's copied, the DNA has to open, because you know, it's a double helix, and inside the DNA, you have the genetic information. So inside the cell, the DNA has to open, the proteins, like a co photocopy machine, copied and, and pass this information to the new cell, newborn cell. So if you have something two meters collapse in the nucleus all tight and you open it, that is creating a lot of tension on the DNA. Okay? And nobody is paying attention about the function of the structure of the DNA. We only think about this 5% that's giving you sequence. But the DNA has to be in a very relaxed, in a very good state if you want to copy it. For example, let me make an example. Imagine that this is a double helix, okay? It has a piece of DNA. But if I give some tension to the DNA, and the DNA is not free to move because you have to be inside, there are two meters. And there's a lot of proteins and copy that if you give tension, you will see how, just because physics, polymers basically, the, you see what's happening in my hands right now here? It's becoming like all these loops. So all this tension is absorbed by the DNA. Okay, keep in tension. Okay, this can move, but normally they cannot move. So you have all these new loops, all these new structures. If you don't release this, the cell cannot duplicate it, cannot be copied, because there is no way that you can pull this. It's physically impossible, okay? So believe me that keep the DNA happy inside the cell is a very healthy advice. Lutz, obviously these things happen, but nature is very intelligent. And from human cells, virus, bacteria, plants, every one of us has a family of proteins. Excuse me. Yes. Before you go on, sure. previous slide, what was the significance of the colouring? Because it's some quite bright yellow lodges. Oh, that's, <coughs> sorry, that's, I mean, it's quite bright, and here it's less than that. Okay, the, the colour here is a high measurement, okay? So the, um, the more yellow, the more high it is. For example, if I have... Oh, I see. Relative to the plane. Relative to the, to the plane, yeah. yeah. So basically, in these cases, you have one strand, and then you have another one, like going it could go on top of it. So this part is going to be double the height, four nanometers so in the case. Some idea of the 3D exactly. So we use an atomic force microscopy. We use the color as a measure of height. Okay. In this one, I don't have it because it's still <laughs> developing the technology is quite difficult to be honest. But okay. So as I was saying. All the cells in life, we have this family of proteins called DNA topoisomerases. You have one type, two types, three types. We all have these three types. These are the proteins acting in different type of mechanisms that they're in charge to keep your DNA happy of any of the tensions. Okay? So what happens if one of them doesn't work? For example, in this case, that was my previous project. We find out that one of these proteins that actually keep your DNA healthy and happy inside your cells, if you don't have it, is one of the primary causes of premature aging syndromes. This is the case of the Werner syndrome. This is a girl of 12 years old 
She, at 30 years old, she passed away with multiple cancers, multiple problems. Okay? It sounds a little bit shocking to me that just a protein that plays with the DNA could have this dramatic effect, but it actually does. Okay? However, this protein has a complicated situation. If you don't have it, it's bad. But what happens when you have a lot of it? You have a lot, the DNA is better regulated, is faster, eliminate all the tension, and the cell can grow faster and faster and faster. And what is this? Cancer cells. We all know cancer cells are very difficult to find a cure because they are your own cells that after accumulating X amount of mutations, they can grow faster and faster and faster as they produce what is a tumor. That will be a definition of tumor probably, okay? We find out, we know for now years, that in these cells, in cancer cells, we have two of these proteins, I call DNA toposomerase 2 and 1, overexpress. You have a lot of these proteins in the cells because the cells need to grow fast and fast and fast, okay? If you stop these proteins, the DNA cannot repair the uh, physical problems and the cell stop growing. And that's why more than 80% of the chemotherapy drugs that we use right now in the market, the target of these drugs are these proteins, okay? So, unfortunately, these proteins are present in every single tissue that's still alive in your body. So you have, that's why you lose your hair when you go to chemotherapy, your nails are totally bad, the worst case is killing your immune system. So a lot of people in chemotherapy treatments, they have a lot of problems, infections and secondary effects for the chemotherapy, sometimes even worse than the proper tumor. Okay? Yeah? But how important is the DNA repair mechanism? Is it proteins that yeah. enable the DNA to repair itself? Yeah. Because it's quite an effective yeah. repair mechanism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the DNA repair is always like a machinery that's working and working and working. But for example, the lack of this protein, especially this one, okay, inhibit the protein, the DNA mechanism proteins. So in the cell, everything together, you have to imagine the cell like a huge like a wall. Nothing works individually. Everything is regulated. And that's why I was very interested in this DNA, because it looks like that the DNA structure, or topology DNA as we call it, it's an upregulated level. You know, you can have proteins, but if the DNA is really close, these proteins will never work. Okay? So that's the whole role of the two meters of the DNA. They regulate at top level. If these proteins are not, especially this one, are not present, all the DNA mechanism repairs will never work. Because the DNA uh, mechanism proteins have to go to the problem and repair it. But if it's on twist, over twist, they cannot go there. You see? So a lot of chemotherapy treatments are working, are target these proteins. As I say to you, right now we're having the problem that chemotherapy treatment needs the combination of more than one drug. <coughs> and obviously a lot of people are having a lot of problems or side effects. Okay, there we go. How now technology can help in this problem, okay? What we're doing in, in, my, in my lab or in my group or what I'm doing in the lab, okay? <laughs> so what I'm doing right now is I thought about it. Let's make some drug delivery systems using nanotechnology. For example, you have here a very thin carbon nanotube and a dendrimeric structure that I will talk later, okay? These two things that you can do in the lab, okay? We do it basically by having big carbon nanotubes and you break it down and you get whatever you want. And I will confine on these uh, nanomaterials the drugs that are used in the chemotherapy. Let's imagine that the green is one drug, the red is two. 
I'm able to confine two of them, more than that, I'm not good on that, <laughs> but we carry on doing this. So what's the meaning of this? Great, if I can have a drug delivery system, like a carrier that the drugs can be holded in there and delivery to cancer cells, the first thing is that the drugs will not be traveling on your blood and all your body. They will confine in a nanostructure. So basically you can reduce the amount of drug that you can actually, the therapeutic dose. And we start already like that, uh, reducing secondary effects. But the challenging part of this project is that I'm trying to make these guys only go to cancer cells. So you could have it periphery in your body, jumping around, but they will only go and target cancer cells. On that, in the future of my project, I try to, to design a nanostructure that we can use it, for example, as a prevention. If your family has more than three cases that have a type of, of cancer, come on. Cancer is not that bad, okay? But the probability that you will have it is high. It's very high. So maybe we can actually one day use this nanomedicine as a prevention, okay? We have to define the size, so the size is very small and you will remove it from your body for the normal process like kidneys and urine will be out, okay? So this is the main point of the um, project. However, it's nice, everything is fantastic, but nanotechnology is still on the infancy, so you will have to overcome a lot of problems. One of the biggest problems that I have is as soon as I got the nanotube, beautiful, I put the drugs quickly on top of it. The second thing that I realized in a matter of five, I five, a matter of less than an hour, all, and it's all, a lot of nanomaterials, they try to aggregate, okay? It's like, okay, fine, they are not soluble anymore, and I don't want this to happen, because if you inject one nanotube and they aggregate, you will collapse as well. So what's the point of a nanomedicine that, that collapses on your blood, for example? So one of the problems that we have right now is to understand these properties. Why this nanomaterial always aggregate? What are the problems? What is, how we can resolve about that? So, it came to my, uh, my mind one day to actually uh, do something with these nanotubes. So what I did was to cover them with DNA, understanding that how I can twist DNA in vitro in the lab. So what I did is to cover all these nanotubes with double-stranded DNA, and because I know the DNA is soluble, I know the DNA properties, what I can have achieved is having resolved this problem. So now you have the, all the nanotubes covered with DNA, they're soluble in any kind of medium, in water, in serum, anything. You can store them at 4 degrees, minus 20, so that makes your life easy because you can make them and you can store it and use it wherever you want. Because if not, if you don't do something, you have to use it straight away. Okay, and all the complications. And but one more important thing is that I was playing with the DNA structure, so I know how to make this reversible. So in one moment, when I, whatever I want, I can remove the DNA from the nanotubes and the nanotubes will be separated, will be DNA from one side, carbon nanotubes with the drugs in another side. Why is this important? Because this is how this, the carrier will be upon traveling on the blood. When these nano medicines enter inside the cell, inside the cell this happens. This step will happen. So when the nanotube with the DNA will be inside the cell, hopefully the cancer cells, the DNA will melt and liberate the carbon nanotube with the drugs inside the cell and target these proteins. Okay? I cannot explain how I did that because one of the things I'm 
discovered with nanotechnology, everything is new. So I patented this thing. I went to see, it's okay for the patent that, they like it, so I got a patent on that. So I cannot explain how I did it, <laughs> but I can explain that I got it. <laughs> now, but it's always nice, this nanotechnology, I mean, I quite like it. I mean, obviously, carbon nanotips are not only used on medicine, carbon nanotips are used in everywhere, like in computer chips, yeah? The, the DNA that you use to cake the nanotips, yeah. What source is that? Does it have to be on the... On no, the it's independent of the sequence, size, the source, anything. And it, anything. Immunology problems? No, problem. I mean, I, in this case, in these experiments, I use bacterial DNA because you can buy it, okay, to be honest, easy to have. You can use human DNA, you can even use your own DNA. It's very easy right now to purify your DNA, you know? You can use your DNA. So it doesn't depend on sequence, source. It depends on the structure. Okay. You don't have compatibility, <coughs> So far as I know, you don't have. Because the DNA, okay, is kind of cheating as well, the human body. The DNA covers the nanotube. So the nanotube doesn't produce you any histocompatibility and the DNA neither as well. Okay? But obviously, we need to do more research on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Can you target the nanotube the tumor cells based on enzyme overexpression or protein overexpression? If I'm trying to target the cancer cells, yeah. well, not really. I'm trying to do something different. I know a lot of people are working in how, so you have now, that's a step, okay? That's the next step as you will see here. <laughs> how I can actually make these carbon nanotubes with DNA only target cancer cells. So there are different ways to do it. I mean, you know the cancer cells have different properties in terms of proteins on the surface. So you can actually add something on the tube that uh, look for these proteins, and that's how you target it. Is However, it yeah, it's like an uh, antibody epitope recognition. So you can use this kind of recognition. However, every cancer has different proteins. So that means that every uh, carbon nanotube have to have different bindings, proteins, different drugs, all the DNA on top of it. So we're making it a little bit complicated here. What I'm trying to do, and I don't think it's gonna, I'm not sure if it's gonna work or not. One thing is true, all cancer cells, it doesn't really matter what cancer cells. When you start, you have a step that is common for all of them. Cancer cells is a tissue, okay? It's becoming, it's then a tissue, and actually they need to grow faster and faster. So what happens with cancer cells? At the beginning, at the level of one cell, they become, they start breaking these connections with the neighborhood cells, okay? To have a space to grow faster. Okay, so some of the, pro uh, the, proper the mechanical properties of the cells change at the level of one cell. Okay, we know, I don't know if you work with cancer cells, but sometimes I open like a little frog that has a cancer, I try to get the cancer cells, and I break them all the time. They're softer. Okay, they're very soft, they're very um, viscous. So I'm, the I'm trying to develop now, and we already have been very successful on that. New technology, new nanotechnology, based on atomic force microscopy in this case, that allows me to characterize the mechanical properties of the cells. If, now, I haven't tried this, but the hypothesis of my project is, if cancer cells are more permeable than the normal cells, whatever is the source of why they are more permeable. Permeable is absorbing more nutrients. Because the DNA likes to go inside the cell more than be outside, this parameter is the one that I'm gonna use to target the cancer cells. Okay, it's true that they are more permeable. We have all the in vitro experiments done. Now I need to make these properties of the cancer cells, okay, to absorb the carbon nanotubes. It does happen in vitro. I still don't know in the human body. Obviously we haven't tried this, 
okay? But in vitro, if you have normal cell or permeable cell, normal cells, these nanostructures don't even see it. You have normal growth. When the permeable is, when the cell is permeability has changed, the carbon nanotubes with DNA goes in. Okay? So my idea is, can I make this work on only cancer cells? Hey, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it doesn't work. But the idea is, have some common sense, but we need to develop a lot of technology to characterize properly because the properties of cancer cell will depend on where you are, which part of the body is, if it's metastatic or not, in which level of growth of the tumor is. But that's the idea, okay? To and if that works, we, will can, we can actually target the cancer cell at the level of one or two cells, not when you have the tumor, okay? But still underdeveloped, okay? Any questions? Yeah? Um, stem cells, you're saying, can become any different any type of cell. Do we understand the mechanism that instructs that stem cell to become bone or become... Well, and, if, and, if, and if we did, that would be the same mechanism, it could be, that distinguishes one cancer cell from another. Yeah, yep. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the problem is, because the stem cell research was a big topic on society and policy maker, we have been blocked to study these cells for more than 20 years. By that time, we will know for sure. We know a lot. I mean, it's imp incredible how much we have advanced in the last three years, I would say. And this is one of the problems that I can see where society and policymakers and public engagement people actually make a really terrible mistake in science. Okay? Stem cells research is still on very early, but yes, that will give us, because if, we, if you think about it, you have the the whole program of inside the cell. We just need to learn how it works. But I have another project with the stem cells. I will explain a little bit later. We know, we have for example, we know now, and it's incredible, you have a skin cell. So we know which three proteins you need to get this skin cell and become backwards, become a stem cell. Yeah, <laughs> that's incredible. It's, it looks like science fiction, but it's not. Seriously, I have it in the lab, and it's, I was like, wow, you know? But obviously, it's one type of cell becoming backwards. That's the process of transdifferentiation, okay? And maybe going backwards is easier than going forward. So we'll see in which way we manage to understand it better. But definitely the cancer stem cells will have a lot to tell me about this. Obviously, it will be very helpful. But you know, it's very difficult to work. It's very expensive. And in these moments that the economy is not going that well, you cannot do these kind of experiments. Okay, it costs you a lot of money to run a stem cell research project in your lab. And actually, I don't have the money for that. <laughs> <laughs> was, was stem cell research blocked in Europe as well? Oh, well. Everywhere. Yeah. Well, kind of blockish, you know. They give us only 10 different cell lines to study when it was promised to have 50. I mean, 10 is fine, but, you know, and we know a little bit. We know a little bit, okay? It's not that we don't know anything and we're starting right now. But the more we know, the companies will make better products to work, better machines, and we are not in that. So working with stem cells is difficult. You have contaminations all the time, they die. Well, so you really need to have a, someone very experienced in the lab. You, have to, you are like a slave of these cells. You have to go every time, every two, three hours to the lab, change the medium, go to your place. I mean, so we still don't know very well how to work with that. But we're doing it. I mean, there's plenty of papers, plenty of new data. Is the research in Europe more advanced than in America we're in the same level, I think. Actually, there's a lot of collaboration between us in that sense. But we are, so basically, the knowledge of science is basically the same. We're on the same level, I hope. Yeah?
Um, I just wondered if at any stage you're going to sort of describe how you manipulate these things, what machines you have, like, because it's so small, I'm just curious to know how you do it. Well, to synthesize nanomaterial, you can use uh, chemical reactions, as you will see ones that I'm doing later on. For example, to use, to get carbon nanotubes, you can synthesize them by deposition on a surface of carbon. And then you break down just with uh, acid treatment in the lab, not that difficult. You can use atomic force microscopy to break things as well, not only to observe things. Electron microscopy, we use, uh, we such a lot, I mean, I was doing a master's degree and we spent like one week talking about different technologies that we have right now. You can make them in a different ways. You can break things, you can make, put atoms together by, um, you know, uh, there is this disposition in 3D, you can get 3D uh, structures by mixing, oh, let me say to explain this in a simple way. You have two, two different ga um, gas, one is more volatile than the other one, so you make the gas go into a surface and volatilize one part and the part that is not, uh, that is more like the precipitate stays in the surface and you can, with the other beam, you can actually limit what you want and keep putting things on top of it. So there's a lot of new technology that is helping us on that. Okay, now we're doing, so it's like, oh for example, the one for the, um, you can check online, the ones from the skin, artificial skin, that's kind of fancy. It's like a printer, like a inked printer. So instead of put ink, you put cells, okay? And you have a surface, a layer of cells, a layer of nutrients, a layer of cells, and then you produce a change on the cells and you have this tissue engineering thing, okay? So there's plenty of different technologies that we're using right now. However, I don't think that we are in even in the, we are starting to know that because we cannot develop new technology if we don't understand what we're looking for. And it's, it's not easy to work in a multidisciplinary project. It's absolutely complicated because we speak different languages. I mean, when I moved to the physics department to do this, they start talking about the quantum coherence electrons and I'm like, oh, what's this, you know, I was scared. So you really need to find a good place that you can actually, you speak the same language, you understand each other and you respect a little bit. And this is, you know, in human conditions are really difficult to find this uh, way of working. So that's why uh, we trained more and more to get these multidisciplinary researchers all together by networks, platforms, but understanding that each of us has something to say, okay? Just recently I published a paper with an engin mechanical engineering. It was really beautiful, but he always talked with equations, and I'm like, yeah, look, the bacteria grows or not, and you know. So like bringing together all the knowledge is not as easy as it seems, because I don't understand equations, and he doesn't understand how bacteria grow, okay? So that is what is a little bit complicated, but we're trying our best. The next experiment that I did, I mean, oh yeah, one thing. I was working with carbon nanotubes, everything was fun, but suddenly there is this new regulation that carbon nanotubes looks like asbestos, so we have to put all the labs under asbestos regulation. Well, a lot of problems, so I decided that I will stop that project and start just in case another one, which doesn't have all these regulations and I can actually work on it. And that's when I start working with dendrimeric structures. So dendrimers are really, well for me they're, it's perfect because the synthesis is difficult but they are commercial so you can buy them, which is something that you don't have to do. I, they have a core which can be of anything and a ramification structure and you can grow them, 
this is one generation, and then you can grow a second generation, a third generation, as it is, you can see here, you see? The nucleus, generation one, generation two is a ramification, three, four. So these guys are always circular. They are always at the same shape, which is important, or nanocontrol the shape and the size. And you can always know what is the size of your nanoparticle, okay? Plus you can buy them. And you can buy them, functionalized with, on the surface, with a positive charge or a negative charge. And I started this project because I, I travel quite a lot to Cuba. And in one of my uh, collaborations there, they find out that these dendrimers were activating somehow the metabolism of bacteria. They're growing fast. And okay, when they have some effect, you have to be very careful. You want to do something that is not toxic for humans, not toxic for bacteria. Okay? Uh, panandendrimers, this is the name of these structures, has been used quite a lot. I mean, there are some already uh, products for drug delivery systems in humans. Okay? What are the little dots there? What are the little arms Well, you can make them of different things, whatever you depends on what you want them, the nature of what you want. For example, if you want to have all of them in a positive charge, you use amino groups. You can use amino, you can use uh, radic oxidant radicals, you can use, it's a library of possibilities. Mm -hmm. So it depends of the functional group that you want, you can choose. I mean, actually, if you go to Sigma Aldrich company, you can say, I want a dendrimer of that size, that generation, make with this. It takes two weeks and you have it in the lab. So that's it, because you don't have to do it. So this is my first experiment in atomic force microscopy. Once again, and I was very sad, but the beginning, the ones with positive charge on the surface, they become like monomeric. So this is actually one dendrimer. The ones that are with negative charge, I don't know why, but they aggregate quite a lot. It's a little bit dark, you don't see very well. So you see this little thing here? That would be one. So as soon as I put them with the, any kind of medium, they aggregate. Okay. Because our, my collaborators were having doubts of how this affects or increase the activity of the bacteria, which I was not pretty sure about it. Uh, one of the first things that I did in the lab was, okay, these guys I know, they're being used for drug delivery system in eukaryotic cells, but I have no clear how these uh, structures will interfere with bacteria cells. Keep reminding you that we have lots of bacteria in our body and our ecosystem is full of bacteria. So the more that we know how this nanoparticle interacts with bacteria or any cell, the better application that we can do. Okay, so this is an electron microscope, by the way. You can see in 3D. Now you will see what happens with the bacteria uh, get in touch with the little ones. It's quite funny. These little ones make a little holes on the bacteria and all the DNA, the proteins, come out, exploded. Suddenly, and the bacteria die. It's like, oh my God. I mean, this is like a Gruyere cheese, you know, with full of little holes and everything's done. It's quite complicated to analyze the data because I'm, I'm developing better the, the AFM to observe this kind of bacteria. But I was like, let's see what the other ones, they aggregate, what they do, how they work. And that was absolutely amazing. Check this out. This is a bacteria. I don't know if you see it properly. And this is like a hole. And all the inside is like going out. It's kind of aggressive picture, to be honest. So it's like uh, the bacteria and all the DNA goes out. It's like Jack the Ripper, I call it. Like <laughs> Jack the Ripper one. Okay? So, yeah, okay. 
People are using this for drug delivery systems. I think I have another one. This one you can see as well. You can see the hole that is making an, it looks like this old DNA confined, like goes out of the bacteria, change completely the shape. Okay, I don't really want to use this as a drug delivery system that will kill all my bacteria in the stomach, you know? So it's like, okay, wait a second. Now, that's the whole point. Definitely, I'm not gonna use this. We are trying to publish this paper and it's complicated because a lot of people are using this as a drug delivery system and now you tell them, hey, watch out. Okay, they are toxic. Okay, and this is when it comes the nice thing of nanotech. It's all new, okay? So you can actually develop other ideas. What we have here, something is not, I mean, as a drug delivery, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna use it. But what is happening? It's killing the bacteria and it's not killing the human cells. Interesting. I tried several experiments and it kills really fast the bacteria, incredible, with very low concentration. So what I have here, what I have, it's a probably a new mechanism for designing antibiotics. What is an antibiotic? An antibiotic is something that kills only bacteria cells. That's why we take them when we have an infection. But you may know now that one of the biggest problems that we have in our society is that we're becoming resistant to antibiotics. Because we take them all the time, we use them very badly, and because we have a limitation, of course, and the bacteria are learning how to become resistant, okay? So we're in the need of a new antibiotics. And why I think that these are new? Because if you think about how a bacteria becomes resistant, it's highly difficult that this resistant process will overcome the fact that a big structure is breaking the membrane of the cell. So maybe are we in front of a new uh, antibiotic uh, design. However, uh, in the future, the bacteria can learn because they keep learning and learning and making mutations to overcome this problem. But I tried to put together two ideas. I have this <coughs> bacteria, this, sorry, this dendrimer. We know that it's like really a good, perfect antibiotic. Doesn't kill human cells. And I want to change the core. I don't know if you heard about it. How about the silver? You know the silver and copper are very good antibiotics. I mean, back in the Second World War, when you don't have um, antibiotics, the people were using copper to kill bacteria when you have a cat. But the ions, basically, ions of silver and copper are toxic for you as well. That's why we don't have any more, we don't cook with copper things. We remove that because the ions are very toxic. But what happens if I manage to put ions together and make nanoparticles? And this will be the nucleus of my dendrimer. Can I actually use the potential of this surface to do this activity on bacteria, plus amplify it because I have silver nucleus here, okay? And actually having, the idea of this is to have a metallic antibiotic. And I'm sorry, maybe bacteria in millions of millions of years, they will become resistant. But it will be very difficult for what we know right now that a bacteria overcome and become resistant to a metallic nanostructure. So we have maybe, okay, we have maybe a new antibiotic way to design, okay? Yeah. You talked before about the overall environmental impact. Yeah. When, when you have a, a particle like this reacts with a bacterium, is it, is it then a chemical reaction on that nanoparticle has gone, mm -hmm. or does it move on to the next bacterium and comes out in your urine and goes into the environment? <laughs> well, maybe next year in the weekend <laughs> I will answer this question. How is happening? I have no idea. I will show you in the next slides how I'm trying to answer this question. 
So what is happening? Is going inside and producing something inside and make the explosion? Or maybe it doesn't even go inside, just by the changing the permeability of the bacteria, it makes the explosion, and then goes to another one. Actually, by the amount of concentration that I add and the effect that I see, I don't think that this goes inside and break the bacteria from the inside. I think that's something from outside. Okay? Now, is breaking after makes the effect? No idea. It's still binding to that. Maybe it's still around here. I don't know. No, I don't know. But this is something I have to be careful because, I mean, okay, I can use this anti antibiotic, but then what I do without it, with this? It's, it's dangerous nanomaterial to release, okay? But okay, obviously, if you throw an antibiotic on the floor, it will kill as well the bacteria. So we always have to think of the applications and then make a right decision where to use it or where not to use it, okay? This example I'm talking about is, the, so it's like an idea to design with nanotechnology new antibiotics. However, back again, I have the problem. Silver, beautiful, perfect, you know, I never knew that to make silver nanoparticles would have been so complicated. I started, and this is a very, like 15 very small silver nanoparticles. After one month, a bigger, and then keep growing and growing and growing, like, oh my God. So okay, this is never anymore like a nanoparticle, it's a macro particle already. You know? So, yeah, my nice idea, but we have to overcome this problem. And that's again, you have an idea, nanotechnology gives you the tools, but there we go, you find problems. It's well known that gold nanoparticles doesn't have this problem. So gold, you make them with the same chemical procedure and they become stable. I don't know why I have to choose silver. It was so complicated. And copper as well, you know. But gold is not toxic for bacteria, okay? So finally, in the lab, we have overcome this problem. And by understanding the silver at the atomic level, we managed to stop this and have nice, with the same size and shape, nanoparticles. This is at 40 nanometers. And we managed to have and control very small ones. So now my next step is get these nanoparticles as a nucleus and produce the second reaction to obtain the branch structure. And maybe next year I will tell you if it works or not. Okay? <laughs> so far, I managed to control the silver, which was a lot. It takes two years because, you know, I'm not chemistry. I'm not physics. I'm not. But this is physical chemistry, you know? And I have to come back to the books when I was studying university, like, what's going on with silver, you know? And that's when I really have a lot of good help from my chemistry friends in Cuba, here in the States. Everyone is helping on that. So our lab is very small, but we have a lot of collaborations because. In this, this is a chemical problem, you know, I didn't understand. So, okay, now I learn a little bit more. But the question is, as you were answered before, how these nanoparticles interact? You know, this is like, you can see one nanometer, this is a scale cartoon. This will be 10 nanometers nanoparticle, and that will be how big they are in proportion of a human cell. And this is the nucleus, okay? Now, when you pay more attention, the membrane of the, or any cell is quite complex. You have phospholipids, you have proteins, you have cholesterol, you have everything. How this nanoparticle is interacting? What happens when it interacts? It goes in, it breaks outside. So this is the next step that we are studying right now. What happens with these nanomedicines when they interact with cells? And as you answered your question before, I don't know if these are attack attacking the, the cell or inside. Now, you have to always think that you can do very fancy experiments to 
answer this question, but right now you have to be very careful that you do things that you know because all nanotech is new for you and not very expensive, okay? So I have this plan. This is a E. coli, a bacteria cell, and if you make a zoom of the little membrane, you can see the complexity of the membrane. You have an external layer, and this is the sugar, kind of a sugar molecules, and when these sugar molecules actually are disattached of the membrane, this is the bacterial toxicity, okay? And this is what producing the E. coli infections. You have an outer membrane, you have an in-between, a periplasmatic space when you have a polymers that gives the resistance and stiffness to the bacteria, you have an internal membrane and finally you reach what is the proteins and the DNA. And this is just the membrane of a bacteria which is the most simple organism that we have, well, so to say, okay? So what I plan to do, so what I'm doing basically, does the nanoparticles act at this level or at this level what this level, what this level, in any cases, will kill the bacteria. But how is doing it? So in order to see that, what I did is select different antibiotics that we have commercially, we've been using for ages, like ampicillin or penicillin, lysosim, polymyxin B, that will be like the same like detergents. You know that detergents kill bacteria, okay? So I say, okay, let me use antibiotics or detergent derivatives that I know where they act. Polymyxin B act at this level, Ampicillin and lysosine break these filaments. And canamycin, for example, stops protein synthesis. Then, I'm, what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to observe bacteria cells under these microscopes and characterize the effect that they have all these antibiotics. Okay? And this is pretty new. This is data for the last week. What we're doing right now is, let's imagine that in the future I can feel the second part of the slide, to compare the effect that silver ions and silver nanoparticles with well-known antibiotics, okay? So polymyxin B, we know that affects the outer layer and produce a change of permeability of the, of the bacteria, and somehow we start to see these big bellies on the bacteria, which remind me quite a lot of what I have right now. So, but then I thought, okay, great. I know about antibiotics, I know pretty much how they work, but nobody has actually visualized at this nano level the molecular changes that an antibiotic does on a bacteria. So this is useful not only for me to understand silver, but at the same time to understand better all the antibiotics that we have, okay? The idea is understanding better the basics of nanoparticle cell interaction will allow me to do and design nano medicine that only goes on one type of bacteria or human cells, you know? So understanding will bring me the possibility to make, be, to make things more selective. Yeah. And to finish, that's my question always in my head, the double-edged sword. You have a nanoparticle that can actually maybe give you medicine, but opens our eyes to the new generation of antibiotics by being metallic antibiotics. At the same time, you have to keep in mind the toxicity of this new material. However, and this is my new project I started a couple of weeks ago, what I was telling before about the stem cells. We know the stem cells, how we know the three proteins in charge to get skin cell to stem cell backwards. But to give these three proteins 
you need to inject three proteins on the cell. You need a nanotool. So I proposed to the stem cell professor, as I call it, okay, to use what they will use, dendrimers, because there is perfect drug delivery system. They are only toxic with bacteria. But this type of experiment, we do it outside in the lab. You have only one cell. We can add the, these proteins to the dendrimers and add the dendrimers to the cell and observe the changes. So you see, some things is like double H word. Can be bad, can be good, can be bad, can be good. It's up to me, up to all of us to define what is the potential toxicity. And as soon as we know the basic basics of interaction, basic of everything, we can actually say, you can apply this for this and that. And this is important because, believe it or not, there is not such a good regulation right now in nanotechnology. When I was preparing my teaching for this master, I was doing like, okay, this research of silver, and I found you can buy silver nanoparticle pills on a pharmacy online shop, and they sell it for diet pills. Man, of course you lose weight, you die. Okay? <laughs> so be careful. And there's another thing that I was shocking the other day. I, was, I went to buy to the supermarket and to buy this kind of products to clean your shoes, you know, like black things to clean your shoes, more or less. And I got two of them. The normal one that I normally buy and the new one done with nanotechnology. Like, oh, interesting. <laughs> so by curiosity, I checked the product. Silver nanoparticles. Nice. My reaction was to get the other one, you know? Same price, same amount, same everything, one with nanotechnology. Okay, I mean, I'm, not, I'm sorry, but I still don't know with these nanoparticles because I don't take it, I don't drink it. But what happened with the product later on? What these nanoparticles are going to go through? So it's nice to see that your research is already taking commercial products, but we have to be careful, okay? I don't want to s give you the message that, okay, let's stop all nanotechnology. No, 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 no. On the contrary, L we have to know what we're talking about, okay? So if you see now something with nanoparticles, okay, don't say, oh, it's bad. No, could be good. But we need to better regulations. We need you guys to have an opinion on what is nanotechnology, and that will actually help, okay? So that's it. Thank you very much for your questions.